Today is a brand new day. And you have a choice to start transforming your life. Because when you commit to find the keys to unlock your true potential, you will unleash your superhuman powers. If you want to discover how to crush self-doubt, master productivity, bend time, accelerate your learning and more, you need to join us today. Because this is the Superhuman Playbook Podcast. Friends, welcome to the world of miracles. Hello and welcome back to the Superhuman Playbook Podcast. Today's superhuman guest is coming to us from Malaysia. Norman Chella is a serial podcaster, interviewer, digital marketer, and superhuman academy coach. As the podcast Rainmaker at That's the Norm Media, he produces shows for clients, interviews guests, and gives keynotes on podcasting. Norm authored the chapter in the Superhuman Playbook titled The Sense Audit. In this episode, we talk about the sense audit, what it is, and why you should try it, but we go much, much deeper than that. So if you want to learn how to change your inputs to change your outputs, and how a magical box that contains dragons, amongst other things, will completely change the way you see the world, stay tuned in for this conversation with Norman Cella. Hey, Norm, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Super excited for this. Yeah, man, thanks for having me. I'm also very, very excited. I've been listening to the previous episodes as well. It's just great to be given the chance to talk about all this and just be part of this movement of like embracing all the other parts that would help you in becoming a better expert in remembering everything. Because I love trying to, you know, tackle all these things uh, in my own ways. So senses ended up becoming the angle that I chose. So yeah, that's really fascinating. I, I mentioned this in the, the intro to this episode, but your chapter title in the Superhuman Playbook is called The Sense Audit. This is one that I found, uh, it was a totally different perspective uh, than anything I'd ever heard before. So, but before we'd like jump into the content of that, I'd be really interested to hear more about who you are now and how you got to where you're at. Oh, okay. Wow. Um, <laughs> prepare for an hour is a long story. Um, sure. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm a uh, co-founder of a podcast company here in Malaysia. I was born here actually in East Malaysia in, on the island of Borneo. Um, when I was young, I moved overseas to Europe. Um, studied in the British school, came back, went to uni in Australia. So you can tell sometimes, depending on the person, I code switch and my accents change. Uh, and <laughs> from uni in Australia in Sydney, I actually went to Tokyo to study for a year, purely just the Japanese language. After that, I graduated and I came back here. I started working in startups, particularly in finance and fintech, et cetera, for a Japanese company focusing on marketing, et cetera. And on the side, I started writing. I started ghostwriting for people. I started writing on like Quora or Medium or other, uh, other channels. In the process, I found out that there was opportunity for me to start to do more independent things. I have the stability of a full-time job and I had the ability to explore as many hobbies, as many curiosities as possible. One of those was podcasting. So my foray into podcasting was that I was in a poetry club or a poetry reading event. And someone recommended to me a narrative episode from this American podcast called Memory Palace, which is 
pretty awesome, right? Fits right well to this podcast. Up until now, it is still my favorite podcast of all time. It is not really about anything memory specific, but it's about historical narratives. It's about specific pieces of history within America. This episode was so beautifully told. It was of this narration of, I believe it was a theme park that got closed down. And it was like a a weaving of music, et cetera. And it gave me this feeling of being by the campfire and having someone narrate a story to you. There's like characters and voices, et cetera. I love that kind of feeling. So I bought a, like every budding podcaster, I bought a Blue Yeti and I stuck it in the middle of my office and I started writing stories or things like narrations just so that I could just record. I just want to play around with this microphone in front of me. At the time, I was writing a lot of fiction, like short stories on Quora. And I started to gain the following for that. And I thought, why not I try to weave the both of that together and create something that's similar to Memory Palace? And it came right at the same time as this short story competition online that I wanted to submit a story for because it was a pretty good forcing function. I was like, let me write a story for this and throw it in there. And maybe I could get you know a prize or get paid or whatever. On the last day, I decided not to send it in because I was scared. I was afraid of being judged <laughs> for my stories. So I instead just continued on with narrating that story that I wrote and turn it into a podcast. And that ended up becoming my first show. That expanded out to multiple other shows. So like over the next few years, I started building this like podcaster side of me. I had quit my job due to certain reasons. And I went full on podcasting, freelance, writing articles about podcasting, consulting people on podcasting, coaching people podcasting. And I have six podcasts under my name now. You know, there's a whole roller coaster journey of me building a name for myself in Asia's podcast ecosystem. And that led to me co-founding this podcast company with a couple of guys here in Malaysia. And now we're trying to be basically Gimlet, but within Asia. How I got here was a lot of self-introspection, right? I've tried many different things. I've read many different books, but nothing beats firsthand synthesis and creation of frameworks that really resonate with how I view the world from being in many places, being in many cultures, speaking many different languages, I started to notice the explicit and implicit of what people say, what people want to hear, what people want to articulate. And as a podcaster, you get more sensitive to what people are talking about. A lot of ums and ahs and their thinking noises, right? They're like, hmm, hmm. And you don't mind that. You forgive the silence because you know they're thinking, right? You, you start to embody these understandings. One of those understandings. It started off from a few years ago when I was in Australia was that I was getting pretty exhausted from doing a lot of work at uni, um, a lot of projects, etc. I was trying to figure out what exactly about this university experience was making me feel depressed or sad or negative. So I wrote down on a piece of paper, what was it about it? Was it maybe my relationships with friends? Was it the workload? Was it the food, etc.? And I wrote all of it down. I had a mirror in front of me and I just looked at my face. I was like, I want to just categorize it by the senses on my face, like my eyes, my ears, my nose, whatever. I had these bullet points of these things that represented each sense, like what I observe at uni, what I smell, the food that I eat, what I hear all the time, the music I listen to and touch, right? You know, hugging certain friends or holding my phone all the time whenever I'm going around. And as I wrote this all out on paper, I was like, oh, this is my life on the piece of paper because this entire paper feeds into what I'm thinking about right now. So 
what I did was that I took that same piece of paper and I took another piece of paper. I wanted to copy over only the positive observations from all of those. And so I crossed out all the negative ones. Then I rewrote the positive ones. And then I wrote at the bottom, how can I reinforce these positive loops, these positive observations, these positive sense experiences and add more positive ones over time. And that ended up becoming the basis for the sense audit. So this became something that I started to do every year. Maybe not like at New Year's time, because that's normally around New Year's resolutions. We tend to fall behind on New Year's resolutions uh, at times. I get a little bit discouraged myself, but it's normally around middle of the year, closer to my birthday rather, where I start to become more introspective about as I age, as I mature, have I really become mature mentally? And part of that is recognizing what actually feeds into my body from a sense perspective. And yeah, I, I got here from just doing an audit of everything I experience from all these things that I've been trying to chase after, my curiosities. And that led to me being very, very particular about what I look, hear, touch, taste, smell. <laughs> and yeah, that's how I got here. Wow. Yeah, when I think of Norman, because we, we met through Superhuman Academy and, and I met you first as a coach and then we wrote the book together. And when I think about you, I mean, I think about podcasting, but I think the thing that comes to mind first, and it's probably influenced both on by the content you created with the book, but also just how you interact with people, you just seem to be very attuned to the subtle things that kind of slip by unnoticed by most people. And I'm wondering, is that something you feel like you've just always done? Is that natural or is that something that you learned to do or very consciously chose to do? It's a good question because I was not born with that. I think it's because the observations I've had as a child had led me to conclude that I must be more sensitive to those subtle things in order to achieve something that I wanted at the time. Like when I was young, I didn't really cry that much. I was pretty quiet. I was kind of mute. And my parents were actually worried about it. So they were wondering, like, are you okay? Like, because, you, you know, I'm not, I'm not giving them a response. They're not sure if there's something wrong with me. I'm not crying. I'm not wanting or demanding everything, except food, because I was really fat when I was really young. But other than that, um, I was quiet because I was just observing. I was just looking at people. I was like, oh, what is he doing? What is she doing? Oh, this book, this book is interesting, etc. And I just kept to myself. I was a very internal person. But what shocked me was when we moved overseas, it was a completely different culture. And in order for me to survive in a different society altogether, I had to learn how to fit in to that culture. So part of that was one, observing what was accepted, the principles within that new culture, and two, the differences between that culture and my own. So there's this culture that I grew up in within Malaysia. And then I moved to the Netherlands in Europe and that became a clash of two cultures. And this resulted in this one internal culture within me where I can just be so organically fluid and just blend in and out between both these cultures. In order to sustain that, I needed to be extra sensitive to how people use their words, how people use their nonverbal communications, how people would be maybe offended Maybe they laugh at dark humor. Maybe they would, you know, pull their head back from laughing too much because that is just how expressive they can be. And some cultures are 
more accepting of such and some are don't like some don't when i moved to a different culture again moved to australia right even if say it is a western society as compared to malaysia uh there are still differences right the differences are not as major but still there are differences and i've had to adapt to that so the adaptability is built on the foundation of my desire to one fit in at the time and to my desire to observe and understand sort of like a Socratic dialogue within myself on trying to ask and understand why is it that this observation in front of me is important and how can I navigate through and around it? That is not something I was born with. I will very clearly state that it's a skill that I developed. And I feel like it's a skill that everybody can practice. Um, it's just a very habitual skill that you have to practice. So what does it look like to practice that skill? When you want to practice a skill like that, you have to be very meticulous about your skills in observing. That's step one before anything. This is like even before the sense audit, even before, even before trying to notice the finer details. It's how can I, the character, me, observe something what do I observe? What have I observed? And what have I observed before? And what have I not observed? So in the realm of, I think, intercultural communications, there is something called the Johari window. And I'm not sure if you've ever heard about that before. Yeah. And I think this is a great introduction to this framework because I think this is very important for pretty much anyone that's going to be listening to the show. The Johari window is a two by two square. And each of the axes represent observations by self or by other people, okay? And the two binary options are, is it being observed or is it not? So I'll run through all the squares pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. The top left is observations that are observed by both self and by other. And this is your impressions, your public image, your general character, what people say or describe you as, right? This is intentional, right? You as the host, we know you as the host of the show. I know you as the host of the show. The listener also knows you as the host of the show. So all these observations are true and equal. Therefore, they fit in the first category. The bottom left is observations by self that are observed by self, but not observed by other people. And this is your deepest, darkest secrets. These are the thoughts you don't share with anyone else. These are the principles and values you you do, will not compromise no matter what, right? And you start to see that this square is a represent, like a representation of your character, right? The top right square is what is not observed by you, but what is observed by other people. So these are observations of you by other people. Maybe there are nuances that you don't know you have, but because I talk to you, I know about them more than you do. And the last square on the bottom right is observations not by neither of these two parties and basically nothing will exist there. I think there's a funny joke where it's like, here they be dragons because it's just, it's just a mythical, right? So the Johari window, the J-O-H-A-R-I, it's a combination of two names. That's why it's a bit strange. So the Johari window is a good indicator of who you are. You know how intentional you are with your character, how you display yourself into the world, 
and you know what's the difference between that and uh, who you are really that you're not showing to me that maybe somebody else is showing to you maybe your loved ones would know more about you right so when we're talking about this window for let's say yourself in relation to other people the squares would increase and decrease in scale and the bigger the squares are the more that that person knows about you because intimately if they know more about you than you do yourself then you know that third square will be way bigger Whereas maybe with a stranger, you will never ever tell them your deepest, darkest secrets. So obviously that's going to be a pretty obvious one. How detailed can you write points within those squares? It's a representation of your ability to observe anything in life. When you fill up the first square, the top left square, that's pretty easy, right? You're like, oh, what do I know about myself? What are the different words? When you hear about it from other people, do they agree? Do they disagree? And then when you hear about, when you try to fill out the bottom left, it'll be a lot easier because it's about you. But the interesting ones, the most interesting square is the third one, no matter what. Because the third square shows what you could not have observed. We are here to chase after what we could not have observed because our skill level right now, it's, it only represents the entirety of our life up until now. But we age, and with age comes maturity. We need to reach up to that level of maturity in order for us to grow, right? That's, and that's life, right? That's the cycle of life. That third square is very key to that. That is why we seek coaches. That is third why we seek consultants. Is, that's the top right, right? The top right, yes. Sorry, yeah. So top left, bottom left, top right, bottom right. So one, two, three, four. The top right is the most important one because you will get blindsided, right? None of your senses have picked up elements of yourself. Someone has to look outside the box to tell you about you. For some reason, for me, when I heard about that, that sounds scary. It's like, I need a second pair of eyes to tell me what's behind my, my, the back of my head, right? It could have been anything, but someone needs to tell me. So I seek all these senses, the sense audit and everything, to fill up the boxes, right? One, two, like the first square, the second square so that I can make educated guesses about the third square. And then in the event that I can actually ask someone, hey, is there something about me that you notice, but I don't really talk about, or I don't really know, or is there a tick or a habit that I do with my speech, et cetera? And they tell me, all of a sudden, I gain new insight. And this plays well into your senses because those squares, the framework for that square can be emulated for each and every sense that you possess. An example, right? And I think I just found out about this today. So it's pretty great coincidence. An example is, is, uh, an example is taste, right? So taste, obviously, food. In the top left, we have foods that normally you would know that it's healthy or it's bad for you, et cetera. And it's also relatively good and bad by other people. So you have like, you know, these certain diets or, you know, less meat, more vegetables, more balanced diet, et cetera, these theories. The bottom left square is when there are certain foods that I will never compromise on, that I know that are good for me, even though other people may disagree. And I may have like a guilty pleasure on, and I absolutely hate and despise. I might have a traumatic experience. Cause like, like I have a traumatic experience with brownies. I can't eat brownies, right? Oh, no. <laughs> like, yeah, I can't eat brownies. Like you, you give me a chocolate cake, I'll eat a chocolate cake. But as soon as you put the word brownies on there, I would actually get sick. Like I would actually feel like throwing up. Like that's I feel like I want to know this story, but I don't know. 
<laughs> I'll, I'll I'll explain that in a bit. I'll explain. It okay. Um, and and the third square, the third square, I had to learn this the hard way. The third square was, it became more apparent when I was staying with someone for a while, like recently. This friend, she is a vegetarian. I used to experiment with like different diets, so I tried to do a vegetarian diet before, uh, and I was like, oh, this is okay, but I didn't really feel any difference. But for her, she's a lot stricter. Right, her her diet restrictions are actually a lot clearer. So to compromise for staying in the same place, we decided to eat a vegetarian diet, and I felt so much more energetic and so much more focused because it wasn't only the less amount of meat that I was eating, but it was also the amount of energy and the quality of ingredients that we were using, and the premiumness of it, the care towards picking specific recipes, that. Make me learn something more about myself. I was like, oh, okay. I think maybe if I employ a more vegetarian diet, I don't have to go full vegetarian, but maybe a more vegetarian diet and be more mindful about my meat, then I would get more energy. I would feel a lot more upbeat. So that is another observation within my audit for taste. So you can see how these frameworks built together. They just really helped me learn more about myself because in the end, all these like all these frameworks are just. They're just synonyms for who am I, right? <laughs> that's that's all they are. Uh, but it it just turns out to be that this is the framework that has lasted the longest for me. That makes a lot of sense. I hadn't heard of the the Johari. It's Johari, right? Is it? Yeah, Johari window. Yeah, Johari. Yeah, because I'm definitely I'm gonna look this up, <laughs> post the link. Yeah. Um, yeah, I hadn't heard of that before. So I, I think if I'm understanding it well, information would kind of move in a counterclockwise circle starting in the fourth quadrant in terms of how it travels. It travels from nobody knows it yes. to other people know it to everyone knows it to you have some personal knowledge of it. Is yes. One way you could look at it. Yeah. Yeah. You can, okay. you can say it like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to understand what could potentially be in the, like the here they be dragon square. And I'm thinking <laughs> about that, but I don't want to declare anything without being, dragons, I'm not, yeah. not confident on it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> dragons are in that square. <laughs> the question that comes to mind i think i might have an answer at least for me to this question but i, I want to hear your answer sure. so for those who want to know more about what's in that third square you said really is really important how can they get that information so by third square you mean how can you know more about yourself the observations that you could never get if you were just by yourself. Um, I'll, I'll give you my experience because it can be very different from everyone. And it is a very vulnerable square to tackle because it involves raw honesty. When I learned about this window, I really wanted to try this out. So I was filling out the first and second square. When I was trying to figure out the third square, the immediate bottleneck was the quality of questions to help funnel people into helping with answering this third square about me. Because I was asking them to tell me something that I don't know about myself. And when you ask someone to do that, it's a, it's a bit uncomfortable, right? Like you don't know if you're going to elicit a negative response, right? Like if maybe it's an observation that you think at first, oh, you know, you, you do this when you talk or like, oh, you, you always blink your right eye when you're lying or something like that, right? Suddenly you become more conscious because information from that third square starts to slowly move or migrate to the first and second square. 
but then maybe you forget and it'll revert back to third square. But you have to come to a decision in terms of how will I take the information that someone will give me with raw honesty. So the very first thing I did was I wrote down five names and these five names were the names of close friends that I've had studied with and, you know, good friends of up until now in Australia. I've trusted them with my secrets. I've trusted them with things that I would write in my second square. I would trust them to give me the same level of respect and honesty and neutrality when giving me observations about myself. So I sat down with them and I said, hey, I want to know, know more about myself. There are things that I'm trying to improve in my life. And sometimes I might be blind to this. Is there anything about me that you've observed that you think that I don't know? Or you think that is unique to me? And this will, you know, this per person, it really depends. I think I've had conversations that last up to like 20, 30 minutes, just answering that third square, because I will be challenging it. There were some that I just couldn't believe. I noticed something about my third square like a few years ago where, where I'm not a very confrontational person. If I get confronted with like a problem or if I can recognize conflict, just like what we we're talking about just now, I'm very sensitive to conversation. So if I can recognize conflict ahead of time, I will retreat and I'll go quiet. My voice becomes more mute and smaller. I didn't notice that. Someone had to tell me. And the person who told me fought with me. Like that's, that's, that's very hard information to take in. Like this is the best friend that I fought with. They tell me like, hey, you do this. And I was pretty mad at you at the time. But I noticed that about you because you normally are not like this. And so we were going down, we were doing a deep dive on that moment. Like we had to relive that, that situation where we we're going to fight. And it, we came to the conclusion that this is what happens when I encounter this situation, I have the following behaviors. So that is, like, that is one good example. It, it just means that you have to lay all your cards down on the table. I think one really good suggestion here for anyone that is willing to try this is to actually state upfront what you're going to do with this information. Because you don't want your friends to feel guilty about telling you something with raw honesty. Because we may inevitably hurt our friends or at least make them more conscious about something. And that may lead to you know, a direction that they don't want to go. So saying something like, hey, I want to talk to you about this because I want to know more about myself and I would rather tackle ways to improve myself with raw honesty. And I trust you. I trust you as a good friend. Will you help me? And then you ask them, right? Is there anything about this? Is there anything about me that, that, that you've observed? And then you could even tell them about the window, the, the square thing. Uh, because eventually after a while, I told them about that as well. And they, they tried it out. So that was pretty cool. So one thing you mentioned earlier that kind of stuck out to me, you mentioned uh, using Socratic method. How does that play a role in those conversations or does it? Oh, it's a mixed bag <laughs> because not everyone is uh, geared towards Socratic dialogue. The act of initiating a neutral environment where we ask to understand or we ask to seek understanding rather from the basis of neutrality is a skill that can be developed, but it takes time. It's also, in some cases, harder to do it with friends because we have that bias, that emotional bias, right? We're, try we're not trying to fight with each other. We're trying to understand together this motion or this topic, et cetera. When 
I try to implement levels of Socratic dialogue or Socratic method. It doesn't always result in the situation that I would prefer. In the end, maybe I'm just repeating things or I'm hearing the same things that I would normally hear just from, uh, just from anyone because they're playing safe, right? They don't want to hurt my feelings, right? That's not what we want, right? Obviously, I don't want my feelings to be hurt, but I would rather that they would initiate the level of comfort by stating the following things and then articulating in a way where this is the following observation I have made of you. You do this, this, this. What do you think? Right? For introducing others to this method, I actually never brought up the term Socratic method. The way that I do it was like, hey, instead of having a conversation between you and me, let's have a conversation together on the same side, the same team, but we're both looking at a whiteboard of this topic. So I'm not facing you. I'm with you. So can you talk with me on this topic? And that analogy helped because it sets it up like a classroom, right? We're not against each other in a debate. We are in a classroom learning together on this one whiteboard. And then that is like the basis for Socratic method. And then over time, you have to ease them with the right questions. Once again, qualitative questions play such a huge role when you have to consider semantics, right? Sometimes certain words have connotative meanings. They mean a lot deeper to certain people than they do to say myself. You have to take that into consideration. But sometimes that can backfire in a Socratic dialogue because mm -hmm. if say you say a word that triggers someone and they're like, oh, I have a lot of emotional bias in that word. And then all of a sudden that derails the conversation. So there's a lot of balancing here. Maybe your friends are not the way for this. Maybe you prefer a mentor, right? Uh, a coach, a consultant, uh, maybe a therapist that can also help. But yeah, th those are some of the ways where I've tried to introduce people to a dialogue better through analogy than through explanation. I know you're very self-aware, so I'm guessing this was very intentional, but I noticed a word that you just said a couple of times. There's something about your language patterns right now that I think is really special that people maybe didn't hear, but you used the word prefer multiple times just now and talking about a situation that you did not prefer or would not prefer arose. Yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing that's a very intentional choice of words, but I think that kind of language and the mindset you're probably taking, it might be invisible to a lot of people. Can you give us some insight on the mindset behind that kind of language? Sure, sure. It was actually within the same time period as when I was testing out the Jahari window on myself. One of the brewing opinions I've had during that period of time, I discovered this Johari window when I was in a bad place. I was going through a lot of things and I recovered and I was trying to figure out what are some of the other things I could put in these squares. One thing that really, shall we say, did not resonate with me was the absolution of opinions. So someone can have such conviction in an opinion that they're not willing to be open-minded enough to let in another opinion. Now, it doesn't matter if they will agree or disagree or change their mind. Sometimes the conviction of one's opinion or the absolution of one's opinion can stop them from growing. And I felt that. I've done that firsthand. Right? I've done that firsthand. Moving from culture to culture, we've always lived our ways 
the Malaysian way, and all of a sudden you you move to a British school, and all of a sudden you you know it's not even just the race or the color of your skin; it's just way deeper. It's the cultural nuances, the intricacies. I didn't know about that, right? So I had to change from this absolute way of life, this lifestyle, on the other side of the world to oh, this is an international school, and people can live you know however the way they want. So the breakdown of the absolution of opinions grew over time, maybe like a decade long. When I went through the window, I was like, oh, okay. I think there are people who have such strong conviction and absolution of opinions that they refuse to listen will reduce my energy. It'll affect my energy. Like it'll make me not want to talk to them. So when I realized that, I was like, this is interesting. Now, do I do it myself? And then I noticed that I do it myself as well. So I decided to change my language patterns to let them know that, yes, I do hold the following opinions, but this is just to remind you that this is a preference. It is a representation of what I, the individual myself, wants and thinks and is the motion that I am willing to believe, but it is still subject to change because, you know, with time comes age and maturity and all of that. The way that I speak, you know, most of the time now becomes more of a preference, more of a softer, oh, I think this is better, or I prefer this, right? It is more of a soft suggestion rather than, yeah, this is the best way. No, this is, this is the only way, right? You are wrong. This is right. They are wrong. There's some strong conviction behind that. I am not willing to put up the strength of that. I would rather have a neutral conversation where we both have a win-win situation in learning from each other, even if we have differing opinions. So yeah, that's my rationale behind using the word prefer more often. <laughs> I figured there was more to it. And uh, <laughs> this definitely points back to the conversation I've had with Antoine. He talked about something very similar, but I think you bring a new perspective to it because what we talked about in that conversation was very much the effect that it has on you internally how much energy you waste holding on to things that you don't really need to hold on to. But I think what you just shared is really powerful too, because it's going to affect the way that people interact with you. And there's a lot of things that people will not be willing to tell you if they perceive you as somebody who is very absolute and they might not even consciously think about this at all, but they're just going to interact with you in a completely different way. And you have no idea the kind of interactions you're missing out on. I think that those small things that you might not have, thought about before and the way that you speak and how, how tightly you hold on to things will completely affect the way that other people interact with you. And there's a lot of learning situations that will just never arise. The opportunities that will never come if you hold things absolutely, like you just mentioned. Yeah, so that does actually... That concept. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that actually reminded me. Uh, I read this post ages ago. I don't think I have the link to it anymore, but it was sort of an observation by somebody that is pretty much a mirror image of the Johari window where he, this is a person who was in college. And then he, he realized that he was trying to figure out why, why he has different circles of friends from his high school friends to his college friends, to his work friends, etc. And he was trying to figure out why are these three so different and why do they interact with him in specific ways in specific contexts. And he came to the conclusion that every time you meet someone, they have an impression of you and they hold it to memory and then it freezes until the next time you get to meet them. And then that impression will continue. 
So think of it like, you, you know, like when you want to have a VHS tape and then you want to record your favorite show and you have to wait for the commercials to finish. So you pause the recording. So like imagine the pause will be years until the next time you meet your friend again. Because now your impression can finally continue because you're now receiving information from this person. That is like evidence of the third square. Because that's the only thing they the only thing they will carry with them is elements of the first square and elements of the third square. And most of the third square is something that's like that will help shape their impression of you. So when I read that, I was like, wow. So what do people think of me? And I, be I became really, really conscious about it, right? I was like, oh, my friends are laughing at me, but are they really laughing at me? Or like my, you know, my, my teachers really like my essays, but do they really like them? You know, I, I started to obsess a little bit over that, but then I, it calmed down when I found the framework. It just made me realize that, okay, there are some things I cannot control, but I can ask and therefore improve the minor things like my words, like using prefer, et cetera. Whether it's right or wrong is, you know, up to me, up to you as well. We know what you think. Um, but one thing that is maybe close to absolute is that minor changes will accumulate over time in terms of their intended effect. And I think that was what I was banking on. And I think it's working really well. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And I think that's kind of maybe wrapping up a lot of the ideas presented here, the importance of the small things. Yeah. And how they compound. I'm going to try to ask you a third quadrant question. Not okay. sure, sure if I'll pull it off or not, but what is a, what is a question that I should ask you, but I wouldn't think to ask you? Ooh, the myriad of questions running through my head right now. <laughs> It'll probably be something around the Johari window for something that's a little bit more relevant to me and maybe a little bit more relevant to, maybe to you as well, to both our obsessions with self-improvement, with our obsessions on self-introspection. What is the influence or the desire behind filling out those windows over time? From the perspective of fear is probably a question that I would love to like expand on because I didn't need to do that. Like I didn't need to know the windows. I didn't need to know my third square. Maybe if I knew about my first square and my second square, and I would know about the border between those two, and I would have like a very healthy migration between the information here and there, it'll be fine. I can grow as a person that way. But the framework helped me understand why I was quite uncomfortable with the sensitivity I have for the minor things. Because that was a third square thing. And I've embodied that. And that has become now something that you've observed right here in this conversation, um, a first square observation, because now this is now something that I, you know, I, I do in all the things I do, right? Like I now carry this, this insight in everything that I do. But I didn't know that. So I was trying to think why, right? Why is the third square so important? I think maybe recently, maybe within the last few years, I noticed that I cared so much about this because there's an element of fear behind it. The fear of missing out, the fear of being left behind. And that can probably reach to some kind of traumatic experience, sure. I think it stems from my desire to want to fit in. I've moved from country to country. I've looked from outside the box all the time. Like even when I was from a young age, I was quiet. 
I didn't really say anything. I didn't really, maybe I wanted to fit in, but I didn't, didn't want to do anything about it. I just wanted to observe. I wanted to understand what is good in this environment. And then all of a sudden we moved overseas and now to do that all over again. So there's the desire to maybe not be in the spotlight is the right sentence for it, but to know that I have a place in the context that I am right now, because there's a fear of being forgotten. There's a fear of being alone. There's a fear of being irrelevant. Sorry, not a fear of being alone, a fear of being lonely. There's a, two, there's a big difference between those two, right? Fear of being lonely. Because I, I can be okay by myself alone. These frameworks, the audit, they are all just weapons of intention. They are designed to help me find out how can I fit better in the context I choose to thrive in or I choose to chase after. During those times, it was those respective societies, those respective cultures. And now it's the, you know, the internet or like, you know, online life or like being a creator or being a memory coach. The communities I choose to be in. And I would ask myself, how can I be a better contributor or how can I serve this community better? And one of those angles is asking people about me. Things that no matter what I do, no matter how meticulous I am, no matter how many notes I take, no matter how large my audit is, no matter how large my squares are, what am I still missing? And whatever that is will belong in the third square. Yeah, very roundabout answer <laughs> to your question. <laughs> no, that, that was great. I think we, we're coming to the end here. And one thing I want to make sure that people know or have an idea of next steps to take. There have been so many actionable points in this conversation and this is also coming from somebody who's been thinking this way for years <laughs> and introspecting and has built this self-awareness so for somebody who hasn't you know spent years thinking in this way what, what is a really good first step they can they can take today to be honest to really start with that johari window like if you like you just take a piece of paper right now a pen and paper and you draw a two by two square the top left is public the bottom left is private and the top right is question mark or like, you know, whatever you could say, like about yourself, but you don't know. And the bottom right, you can just draw a dragon. In the first column, right? The top left and the bottom left. You can write about that immediately, right? That's a great first step. Like write so much about yourself that people know and write so much about yourself that people don't know. And your next step from there, th this is the crossroads, right? Your next step is deciding what to do with the information. Will you draw out points from the third square? If you will, then you will start to learn or gain clarity on your potential for growth, your potential for self-introspection, your potential on getting to know yourself better and not be blindsided by things that you could have asked people about that could have been potentially negative or harmful to loved ones or unless you sat down with you know, someone that you know, or someone that knows you really, really well, and you say, please help me, right? These are all forms of help. These are all forms of self-help. This, this sense audit, as much as it is a great way to figure out what actually goes into your head, to be honest, the sense audit is like a subset of the top left square, if you think about it, because everything goes in the top left square. The world is in the top left square. And it's more about how you fit in that world, right? Like what's your role in that world? 
that's the top left square. So you can fit a ton of things in there. The sense audit is one of them. But to be honest, draw out your life on a two by two square, the first and the second square, and then just ask yourself, will you continue? If you say yes, hey, you're learning. If you say no, well, that's perfectly fine. You don't need to know about yourself more because it's scary, right? It's scary. Like I was scared, like learning about the third square. I, I don't want to put anyone through bounds of fear, right? But on the other side of fear is freedom. We have many different vehicles to get over that barrier of fear, like love or encouragement or handholding or friendship, etc., or even insight. But if the other side is freedom, then you have to get through it. That's my step one. Like just draw, draw out the Johari window. Awesome. Well, I will definitely do that. I would encourage all of our listeners to do the same. Uh, I don't think there's a better note that we could end on <laughs> than that. Oh, wait, actually, to... actually, yeah. yeah. Um, the, uh, the brownie thing, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I didn't want to leave that out. Yeah. Uh, sure. So, <laughs> hey, very, very relevant to my sense audit. I'm traumatized by brownies, right? Um, there's a few things, a few foods in life that I cannot eat. Uh, raisins is one of them and brownies is the other. I used to live in the living room of a shared apartment with a couple other guys when I was studying in Sydney. This was an open air area and I, was just, I just had a mattress and my corner of that living room was called the bird's nest because I just put all my stuff all around that mattress and that's just my area. That's just like clothes and laptops and all of that. When I was trying to raise funds for a camping trip for a club in, in Sydney, uh, we wanted to sell things like within the uni. So some people would do like a barbecue, like a barbecue grill, like sausages and all that. But we decided to do like a baking sale. So brownies were the easiest thing to make. And my house and my apartment was really, really close to the uni. So for one week, every day, a couple of students would come in at like seven in the morning. They'll bake two rounds of brownies in the kitchen and they'll bring it to the uni to sell. But this is open air. So the kitchen, there was no wall between the kitchen and the living room. So my area smelled like brownies for seven days. I slept in brownie smell. I breathed brownie smell. I was just, it, was, it, was just, it was just so traumatic because actually I, that's all I could smell. Like the water, like a glass of water tasted like brownies. I was so disgusted. It was really bad. And you know, that was one of the things I wrote in the sense audit. Like every year, every time I do the sense audit, one of the first few things I put was like brownies. I still hate them, right? <laughs> Absolute rule. Like I just decided just no, no brownies at all. But yeah, um, sorry, that wasn't really a very insightful, uh, mind-blowing thing to end on, but I just thought I want to get that in. <laughs> oh yeah, got to close that loop. <laughs> That's great. And uh, real quick, where can people find you if they want, if they want to get in touch with you or, or learn more about what you're doing? Sure. So I have two websites. My business card website is normancella.com. So that's pretty much my first and last name. So that's just a summary of all the things I do because I do many different things, podcasting and like, you know, memory coaching as well. All my content, my podcasts and a deep dive into other curiosity posts and uh, videos, et cetera. It's all on a website called thatsthenorm.com. So that's the N-O-R-M.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Norman Cella. That's like the easiest way to get to me because I'll just be talking about all sorts of things from podcasting to memory. Uh, and yeah, just shoot a DM there or just tweet at me. Awesome. Sounds great. 
Well, Norm, thank you so much for being on today. This was a pleasure. I learned a ton. I'm going to jump into that, uh, that exercise probably right after this. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we should talk soon. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. All right. See ya.